I honestly don't know what the man's name is that tells this story. He refers to himself only as Tommy's grandfather. So we're going to have to do the same thing. We'll just call him Grandpa. But it's a really good story. Grandpa says that he had been invited by his son and his family to go to an outdoor concert with them. Now that was outside of his range of experiences. He didn't care much for the heat. and He didn't like just sitting outside hour upon hour. But they had invited and so he decided that he would go. And he was so glad he did. The concert was nothing spectacular. It was hot, just like he had expected. He was thirsty by the time it was over. He was tired, but he'd been with his family, and that was pretty special. When everything was done, Tommy's mother had taken his brother to go find something to drink. Tommy's dad was offloading the car, so Tommy and Grandpa were left alone. It was a special time for the two of them. Tommy had come over and just sat down in Grandpa's lap. And I'm not a grandfather, but I've heard grandfathers talk about this. That must be pretty special. Tommy came over and just sat down in his lap. And they were looking up at the night sky together and not really saying much. They were both pretty tired. And then Tommy broke the silence this way. He said, Grandpa, how did the stars get there? And Grandpa, without missing a beat, said, well, Tommy, God put them there. Tommy said back to his grandpa, Oh yeah, my dad told me that. And then he continued on just staring at those stars. Tommy then broke the silence again. And this really caught grandpa's attention. He said, But God died. Grandpa listened to that for a minute and, and thought, I've got to respond somehow. This is a teachable moment. I don't want to let this go. So grandpa said, That's right, Tommy. God did die. And then he rose from the grave. And Tommy, with a smile on his face, staring up at the stars, said, Oh yeah, I forgot that part. Isn't that good? Oh yeah, I forgot that part. Tommy, still sitting in his lap, just stared back up at the stars. And Grandpa stared up at the stars. And then Tommy broke the silence again. And he said, Where's my daddy? And Grandpa said, Well, he's loading the car. He had to go put everything away. And Tommy was okay with that. And he sat staring at the stars on Grandpa's lap for a little bit longer and then broke the silence again. He said, I miss him, speaking of his daddy. Grandpa says that that didn't make a lot of sense to him. It isn't that he was going to be gone very long at all. He was just loading the car. It wasn't even that Tommy was away from his dad very often. They spent a lot of time together. His dad laughed with him. His dad taught him all kinds of things. They had a wonderful relationship. Grandpa figured out that when Tommy said, I miss him, what he was really saying was, I'm not used to being away from him. So Grandpa decided again, here's a teachable moment, and he responded back to Tommy, and he said, you know, Tommy, even when your mommy and daddy are gone, God is always here. And Tommy said, yeah, I, I know that. And then they sat silently together for a while, and, and I have to tell you, Grandpa is a, man, he's a good preacher. He really is. Whether he knows it or not, he's a good preacher, because listen to what happens next. Tommy breaks the silence once again, and he said, if God were my daddy, I'd have the best daddy in the whole world. And Grandpa followed it up by saying, You know, Tommy, he is. He's your daddy. And he cares for you. And even when your earthly mommy and daddy are gone, your heavenly father is always there. And he says, I will never leave you. Now this is how you know that Grandpa was such a good preacher. Listen to the response of his audience. Tommy said, Oh yeah. I forget that sometimes. And that's how their conversation ended. 
Tommy fell asleep on his lap. Happens to the best of preachers. People fall asleep during the sermon, right after the sermon. Tommy's asleep on his lap, and Grandpa's just looking up into the stars, holding on to those precious moments that they just had together, and they were, they were really something special. You ever felt like Tommy? That there are things you should know about God, there's things you should remember about God, but when you're reminded of them, you recognize that every once in a while you forget those things? It might be as simple as this. Yes, Jesus did die on the cross, but He came out of the grave. Sometimes we forget that Jesus rose from the dead. That makes it possible for us to say things like this. Just like the Apostle Paul did, all things are possible through Christ who gives me strength. Look at what he did. He overcame the grave. There is no fear of death. I don't have to worry about that because Jesus Christ led the way out of the tomb. Sometimes we forget about that and fear takes hold. And we begin to see the impossibilities rather than what is possible. And all things are possible through Christ who gives us strength. And sometimes we forget that God said He will never leave us. In those moments where fear really sets in and takes hold in our life, we grab hold of everything that we're doing and we try to control it to the best of our ability rather than surrendering it. Faith teaches us that we are supposed to surrender things to God rather than try to control them. Faith teaches us that if we place things under God's care, they're going to go a whole lot better than if they are under our care. Sometimes we forget about faith. Sometimes we forget how it works. Sometimes we forget that we're supposed to hold on to it. We're not much different than Tommy. And then somebody reminds us of those things and we say, oh yeah, I forgot that, or I forget that sometimes. Well, this morning, I want to spend some time looking at faith and how it works. So if you have forgotten it, I'm going to show you some real tangible things about how faith works. If you've never taken a step into faith, I'm going to show you some real tangible things about how it works. And hopefully, you're going to have some different ideas that you can hold on to when we wrap this message up this morning. Faith is a place where our relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ, can come alive. It's a place where we are able to declare, Lord, I trust You, and everything that I have, everything that I am doing, everything in front of me belongs to You. And that's what I want you to see this morning. Because from time to time, we are all guilty, just like Tommy, of forgetting how it works. If you brought your Bible with you, and I hope you did, we are going to go to the Old Testament to the book of 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 1. The wife of a man from the company of the prophets cried out to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that he revered the Lord. But now his creditor is coming to take my boys as his slaves. Elisha replied to her, How can I help you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? Your servant has nothing there at all, she said, except a little oil. Elisha said, go around and ask all your neighbors for empty jars. Don't ask for just a few. Then go inside and shut the door behind you and your sons. Pour oil into all the jars until each one is filled, and then put it to one side. She left him and afterwards shut the door behind her and her sons. They brought the jars to her, and she kept pouring. When all the jars were full, she said to her son, bring me another one. But he replied, There is not a jar left. Then the oil stopped flowing. She went and told the man of God. 
And he said, go sell the oil and pay your debts. You and your sons can live on what is left. I want to show you four things out of that story this morning. First one is this. When we decide to venture into faith, it will often begin right where we're at. God meets us right where we're at. I want you to think about this lady's situation. She was the wife of a prophet. She knew who God was. She had spent time listening to her husband declare the thoughts and the words of God. They weren't foreign to her at all. And now he's died. She's in a pretty desperate place. She doesn't know how she's going to support her family. She still has these two boys living at home. It's desperate. What am I supposed to do? I love the idea that she went to Elisha. Even though she knew who God was, she still needed somebody to speak on behalf of God. It was different in the Old Testament than it is in the New. In the New Testament, we learn that the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. Jesus dwells within us. And so we're able to go to Him on our own. In the Old Testament, they had to go speak to the the voice of God, the prophets of God. And this lady knew it. She needed Elijah pretty desperately. So when she went and laid everything out in front of him, she said, Your servant, my husband prophet, man that served God all of his life, is gone. Now here come the creditors. Old Testament law allowed for a a person who had debts, after they died, the creditor could come and take their families. They could not treat them as slaves. They had to treat them as servants, but it wasn't a great life. She's looking at what was going to be the the end result for her sons or or what their future held now. All of their hopes gone, all their dreams gone. They're going to have to go and pay off their father's debts. And Old Testament law allowed for it. So she said, what am I going to do? I don't want that to be the case. Elisha's response is wonderful. If you're not careful, you could read it with an air of frustration. There's no frustration in this at all. Verse 3, Elisha said, go around, I'm sorry, verse 2, Elisha replied to her, how can I help you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? That wasn't him saying, get away from me. I don't want to deal with this right now. It was really Elisha saying, how can I help you? I want to intervene here. I want to do something to help you out. What do you have in your house? This lady is screaming as loud as she possibly can. I am at the end of myself. I have no hope. What am I going to do? And Elisha says, I'll help you. And when Elisha said he would help you, it meant God would help. You see, the Lord meets us right where we're at. For a lot of people, it's no different than this widow. I'm at the end of myself. I have nowhere else to turn. I have nothing left. I do not have any power or any ability on my own. I'm in trouble. That's where faith begins for a lot of people. And God meets us there. He is always willing, always willing to find us wherever we are at when we are ready to trust Him. And when we are, great things happen. Spectacular things happen. Miraculous things happen. Faith things happen. Because God meets us right in the middle of life. God meets us in the good moments and the bad. He'll find us in the darkest places and snatch us from them. It's a pretty remarkable thing, miraculous thing, if you will, that God is always watching that way and always willing. So once faith is born, once we get to that place where we're willing to say, Lord, I need you, and I want to trust you, then God will very often start with the things that we already have. He will start with the things that we already have. Did you catch the fact that Elisha said, what do you have in your house? 
She said, I don't have anything except just a little bit of oil. That's all it takes. That's it. God wants to look at what you're holding on to. He wants to look at what you still have, and He will multiply it. He will do miraculous things with it. If you don't trust just this one story, we're still in the Old Testament. Go back a few books with me to the book of Exodus, second book of the Bible. Chapter 4, verse 1. Moses answered, What if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, The Lord did not appear to you? Moses has been called by God and his faith is wavering. God spoke to him through a burning bush. He should have been as solid as anybody, but still he's doubting. You ever doubt when God says, This is what I want you to do? You ever question the things that you know you're supposed to do because the Bible lays them out? Moses did. God laid it out for him, said, this is what I want you to do. Moses, in turn, questions God. Here's what God does. Verse 2, Then the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, Throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground, and it became a snake, and he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, Reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake, and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Even Moses found himself at a place in his faith where he needed God to deal with what he had, and all he had was a staff. God does that. He starts with what we have. A lot of times that's what we have in our hands, what we're holding on to the tightest. The Shunammite widow, she was holding on to a little bit of oil. Moses was holding on to his staff. It's what they knew. It's where comfort was found. It's where peace was found. Now, it's not just people like the widow in 2 Kings or Moses in the book of Exodus. Let's go to the New Testament. Luke chapter 5, verse 1. One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and the people crowding around him and listening to the word of God, he saw that the water's edge were two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little bit from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night. I haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I'll let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid, from now on you will catch men. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. Now that's a fantastic story about how faith begins. But did you catch what happened? Jesus met them where they were at. And it began with what they had. They had nets. And God used those nets to bless them, to get their attention. There are some of you right now thinking, gosh, I wish God would do that when I was out fishing. I wish he would start with my fishing pole and then he would do something amazing with it. Sometimes he does. For them, that's how their faith got started. You could go to John chapter 6 and see the exact same thing. When there were 5,000 people around Jesus that were hungry, Jesus said to the disciples, you feed them. They said, we can't. It would take too much money. Jesus said, what do you have? They had five loaves and two fish. That's all it took. 5,000 people ate from five loaves and two fish. Faith begins all too often with what we have. 
Now let me give you a practical illustration of that. For some people, they were raised in the church. For some people, they were raised around the things of God, but they didn't pay very close attention. They go through a period in their life where they drift away from the things that they were raised in. They spend a, a long period in their life where they don't listen to God at all, and then something happens, whatever that might be, good or bad. It might be the birth of a child. It might be the loss of a job. Any number of different things will cause them to return to that faith. God is using what they already have to bring them back. That's a strong teaching from the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6. Train a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Really what Solomon is teaching is you're giving them what they need so that when the moment comes that they have to return, they will return. Train up a child in the way they should go, and when they're old, they will not depart from it. That's what they already have, a foundation of faith. I hear it all the time. People will tell me that, well, my grandfather was a preacher, or my mother prayed for me all the time, or mom and dad used to take us to vacation Bible school, or we went to Sunday school, or we used to go to church. And now all of a sudden they're doing that again because they need something. They're looking for faith, and God's using what they have. There's some seeds that were planted a long time ago. For other people, though, those seeds are non-existent. They don't have anything that they can hold on to and return to. So God gives them something else. God gives proof of Himself through all of creation so that men are without excuse. Romans chapter 1, verse 20 tells us. God says, I'll demonstrate Myself to you so that you have no excuse but to find Me when you need Me the most. All we have to do is look up into the mountains to see that. All we have to do is look at the river to see that God is all around us. If we'll pay attention to it, then our faith can springboard from there into belief in Jesus Christ. We can get to a place where we can see God's great love. He starts with what we have. That He might lead us to a place like David, where we would say these words. This is found in the book of Psalms. Chapter 121, verse 1. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. That is a fantastic way of declaring where faith starts. My help comes from the Lord. That's where my faith is at. Even when I'm at this spot where I have nothing left, like this Shunammite widow, I have nothing left. Well, you still have God. And if you'll turn to him, you can get to a place like David did, where you can declare, my help, my hope comes from God. One of the ways that you'll see that is by understanding what God can do with those things we have. As little as they might be, God can turn a little into a lot. That's the way he does it. You saw what happened back in 2 Kings chapter 4. Moses, not Moses, I'm sorry, Elisha said, you go out and get all the jars you can from your community. You bring them into the house. You start pouring oil. She did. Every one of the jars was filled up. All she had was a little bit of oil, probably enough to make one more meal. And she just kept filling jars, pouring jar after jar after jar of God's provision, of God's care, of God's love. He took a little bit and turned it into a lot. Folks, that's what faith does. Faith takes a little bit and turns it into a lot. You might say to yourself, or even to me, Preacher, I, I don't know. I don't know what I even have anymore. I don't know how God can do that. 
Well, sometimes you have to change your perspective. I'll show you what I'm talking about. We're going to go now to the the New Testament, Gospel of John. John chapter 9. Verse 1. Seems like we're starting in verse 1 all the time today. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, pay close attention to this. Having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. Now I want to stop there for just a second. I have studied that verse and that story literally all of my life. Popular story to be taught in Sunday school. How many of you grew up hearing that story? Jesus spits on the ground, makes the mud, puts it on the man's eyes. At any time in the midst of your studying that story or hearing that story taught or preached, did you think to yourself, the man never once reacted to having mud made out of spit put on his eyes? The Bible at no point ever says that the man reeled backwards and went, yuck! At no point did we ever get any kind of indication that this man, born blind, might have been a germaphobe. Anybody ever notice that? He couldn't see what was going on. Yeah, but you know, if you're going to make mud out of spit, there's sounds involved. <laughs> I'm just going to stop there, Kathy. We, we won't go any deeper into that. He knows what's going on, and all of a sudden he has mud on his eyes, and he's not reeling backwards. This past week, I decided to, to figure out for myself why it is that this guy was not grossed out by it. And here's what I came up with. He more than likely had gone to a number of specialists. He had more than likely been to doctor after doctor after doctor. His parents probably took him to see all of these doctors. Specialists during those days were a lot different than the specialists we would have gone to today. Those doctors would have prescribed things like this for him. He was to drink every day a cup of bat's blood, and that would restore his sight. Popular cure for blindness in those days. And if that didn't work, maybe he went to another town and said, I was born blind and I want my sight restored. And they couldn't perform surgery like they can today. There was no laser surgery that they could do. So they were coming up with whatever they could. And this new specialist might have said something along these lines. Well, what I have here is a bag of ground up monkey gallbladder. And I want you to take this monkey gallbladder and rub it on your eyes every day. Make a paste out of it and put it across your eyes and that will restore your sight. Connie is a pharmacist. Boy, doesn't that sound like a blessing. People could come in to you and they could say, Boy, I'm running low on monkey gallbladder. Have you got something for me? And you just fill the prescription and give it to them. That's what this guy had been through. So when Jesus says, I'm going to put a little bit of mud on your eyes and I'm even going to make it out of spit, all right, knock yourself out. I've had monkey gallbladder and bat's blood going on. So a little bit of, of spit mud, that is totally okay. So he puts it on his eyes, and then he says, you go wash. All it took was a little bit of mud. Jesus can make a little bit go a long ways, and he does. Part of the reason that I think this story is in the Bible, and this is nothing more than my opinion, so throw it away if you want to. A lot of us have to look through the mud before we can ever see Jesus. A lot of times our faith begins in mud. And once we get through the mud, we can begin to see the light of the world very clearly. We can see who Jesus is, but we've got to go through some, some 
disgusting stuff. Some tough stuff to get there. But God makes a little bit go a long ways. Even if it's mud, He makes a little bit of trial go a long ways. He makes a little bit of mud go a long ways. He can do miraculous, amazing things, even with common things in our world. That's what faith does for us. God takes a little bit and He stretches it in to exactly what we need. It's a beautiful thing when that happens. It really is. For the past few weeks, though, I've been telling you that a lot of our faith is based on our expectations. Today I want to shift that just a little bit and tell you that I believe that we live within our faith boundaries. We live within our faith boundaries. For some people, those boundaries are very close. And we never receive much of anything from God because we keep the boundaries so close to us. For other people, we'll stretch those boundaries out and that means that we get to live within this amazing faith where we see God do things all the time. Time after time after time, God responds to us because we've pushed the boundaries out. But for so many people, we keep them so close and so tight that there isn't room for God to do anything at all. And that's our fault. That's our fault. If we go back to 2 Kings chapter 4, you can see how this works. Elisha said to her, I want you to go and collect the jars from your community. And he said, and don't get just a few. Now her faith boundaries, if they were real tight, might have had her knock on the door next to her, or maybe the, the door on the other side as well. So she would have sent her sons to just two houses, and they would have had 12 jars. But she went to find as many as she could. Faith boundaries were stretched and she was willing to go out and do whatever was necessary to get enough jars because Elisha said, and don't get just a few. Now that's good teaching where faith is concerned. All he's really saying is you get your boundaries moved out there so that you can see God do something big. You get your boundaries moved out there so that you can experience something from the Lord. That's what we're doing right now with this Impossible Possibilities campaign. Our generation standing in awe of God idea. We have moved the boundaries way out because we have good expectations of God. We have great expectations of God. We really do. $25 a month from 800 individuals in the church liquidates $1.1 million of debt in less than five years. That's great expectations of God. Our elders and our finance team had to push their faith boundaries out a long ways in order to see that. But it's a great expectation because all we're asking God to do is something great with a little bit. And God does that. By the way, a little commercial for you and then I'm going to move on from this. There's a poster in the back. We showed it to you last week, projected it up on the screen. I don't know if we can do that now, Beth, can we? We'll see if we can get that back up. There it is. Each one of those dots, there are 800 of them on that picture. Each one of those dots represents $25 a month or $1,500 over the course of five years. If every individual in the church would take one of those dots, we have roughly 850 people that are actively attending this church. If every one of those people would take one of those dots, we liquidate the dead on this building and we preserve the future of this church for years and years and years to come by no longer being saddled with making building payments. And we wanted to make it as easy as possible, so we just said, hey, 25 bucks a month, that's not a big deal. So here's what we've done today. 
We have some cards in the back. The ushers will be standing in the back. If you want to take a dot or two dots or three dots, our family will take five of these today because there are five members of our family. Each one of those dots represents $25. So five of those will come off for the Allspa family. We are going to say we want $125 a month of it. So we want five $25 dots. We can make this whole thing disappear and have an unbelievable faith experience because God does great things with a little bit. He really does. And here's this wonderful, tangible chance for everybody to be involved in a miracle. Now, here's the way this thing works. The card is perforated, so we're going to ask you to tear it in half. This side of it, we're going to ask you to keep. That's your dot to remind you of your commitment, your $25. The other one just has a little line in the middle. It says, impossible possibilities, and right in the middle of it, it says, I'm in. All we need you to do is just put your name on there so that we'll know how many dots have gone out next week. We'll show you how many have come down after just one week of putting these out. Those cards, by the way, will go to Larry Lampton and our finance team. They'll be the only ones who know who has given. So we'll give that to the finance team and they'll take it from there. I am so excited about this because I want to see what God can do. Are you excited to see what God can do? Well, a little bit. (laughs) Are you excited to see what God can do? I am. Thank you very much. Okay, now let's just go back into what we were talking about. The commercial's over. I want you to see what happens when you move your faith boundaries out. And I want you to have a tangible way of expressing that. So we're going to go back to the book of 2 Kings, this time to chapter 13. I have spent a lot of time in this story. I told the guys that I pray with on Sunday mornings just today that this has become my new favorite faith story in all of the Bible. I've seen it before. I've read through the books of First and Second Kings. I don't know how many times. It just grabbed me this week as I was studying it. And I, like I said, spent a lot of time in it. I want you to listen to this whole story. You're going to have to listen close to catch the details. Chapter 13, verse 10. In the 37th year of Joash, king of Judah, Jehoash, son of Jehoahaz, became king of Israel in Samaria. And he reigned 16 years. By the way, there's some great biblical names. If you're pregnant, if you're expecting, you might want to think about Jehoahaz. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. He continued in them. As for the other events of the reign of Jehoash, all he did and his achievements, including his war against Amaziah, king of Judah, Are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel? Jehoash rested with his fathers, and Jeroboam succeeded him on the throne. Jehoash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. Now Elisha was suffering from the illness from which he died. Jehoash, king of Israel, went down to see him and wept over him. My father, my father, he cried, the chariots and the horsemen of Israel. Elisha said, get a bow and some arrows, and he did so. Take the bow in your hands, he said to the king of Israel. When he had taken it, Elisha put his hand on the king's hands. Open the east window, he said, and he opened it. Shoot, Elisha said, and he shot. The Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Aram, Elisha declared. You will completely destroy the Arameans at Aphek. Then he said, take the arrows, and the king took them. Elisha told him, strike the ground, and he struck it three times and stopped. The man of God was angry with him and said, You should have struck the ground five or six times. Then you would have defeated Aram and completely destroyed it. But now you will defeat it only three times. Now here's what's going on, just so you know this. King of Aram is descending on Jehoash. 
He is the king of Israel. He's worried about the armies that are advancing against him, even though he is not a follower of God. He knows who Elisha is. He knows who Jehovah is, and he knows who can help him. He's in a time of trouble. Jehoash is like the widow in 2 Kings chapter 4. I got nothing left. These armies are advancing against me, and I have nothing left. Interesting trivia for you, nothing more than that. It has been 40 years since Elisha has done anything in the nation of Israel, or at least 40 years without recording what Elisha has done. He's on his deathbed. But Jehoash, the king of Israel, knows, i got to get to him, and I have to get there as quickly as I can. When he got there, he showed great respect to him. My father, my father. Same thing that Elisha said to Elijah when Elijah was about to leave this world. My father, my father. He declared who he was. He declared his respect. He declared the relationship. And did you catch it? The conversation was pretty short. The armies of Israel, chariots, are in trouble. And Elisha responded, I love the response. Get your bow. If you are a bow hunter, if you are an archer, this is a cool story. Get your bow, knock an arrow, and open the window to the east and shoot that arrow. Now Elisha laid his hands on Jehoash's hands. He blessed what was about to happen. The blessing was this. That became an arrow of victory. When Jehoash shot it out the window, he received and declared all at the same time an arrow of victory. But it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop there. Elisha says to him, now you take your remaining arrows and you bang them on the ground. Jehoash's response was so human. It was so like us. He got down and banged them on the ground three times. That was it. Just three times. Bam, bam, bam. Now, Elisha didn't give him any other qualifiers for that. You just hit him on the ground. Did you hear what Elisha said? Shame on you. Only three times. Are you serious? You just shot an arrow of victory, and you're only going to bang those arrows three times? Get down there and bang them on the ground. You declare what God has done. Bang them on the ground and see what would happen. I have this goofy idea. I don't know what's going to happen with this. Ray, I don't... You're an elder. We'll figure this out. I think it'd be really cool if we lined up every bow hunter in the church out in front in the parking lot and we launched arrows into our property and left them over there because we have the armies of Satan advancing against us all the time. They are always coming at us. How cool would it be if we had a line of archers out in front that shot arrows into the the, uh, open area of our property and we declared that the arrow of victory? But we won't stop there. Afterwards, we're going to ask them to bang those arrows on the ground. Get down and bang them on the ground and let's see what we can expect. I'm actually thinking about taking this idea into the counseling office. This past week, that's what ran through my mind. For couples that are struggling in their marriage... If they really want to see it fixed, shoot an arrow of victory. And then let's see what you do with the remaining arrows. Are you going to bang them on the ground once or twice, three times? Or are you going to bang them on the ground with great expectation of what God would do? For people that are struggling over depression, shoot an arrow of victory and then you bang the remaining arrows on the ground and you see what will happen. You declare what you expect. You move the boundaries Most of us have boundaries so close that we would only hit the ground once or twice. Yesterday after Cameron's service, I was talking with Jennifer Cameron's girlfriend and Brittany, his daughter. They've had a tough year. 
My goodness, they've had a tough year. Since October, they buried four very close family members. Jim, you know all about that. They've buried four very close family members. Cameron's mother died just two weeks ago, a week before he died. It has been difficult for them. I said to them, you need a reset button. So you guys could push that button. And without any exaggeration, this is exactly what they said to me. Jennifer, Cameron's girlfriend, said, I wouldn't just push that button. I would jump up and down on it like it was a trampoline. I thought, you've read 2 Kings 13. You know how to do this. Brittany said, I wouldn't just push the button. I'd find a sledgehammer and smash that thing. She's read 2 Kings 13. Faith boundaries are moving When we push them out there, we can expect great things of God. I don't know if I'm going to put a bow and some arrows in my office and see what happens, but I think it's pretty cool because sometimes people need tangible things. You launch an arrow of victory. You launch an arrow of victory and then you show God what you're willing to do and how far you're willing to go afterwards. And God responds to that. He really does. It's a great passage of Scripture. Become my favorite right now. It'll change. Right now, that's my favorite faith passage because it shows us how it works. It really does. Shoot the first arrow, and from there, move your boundaries and watch what God will do. There are all kinds of ways for us to jump into faith issues. And if you're just trying to figure it out, take a step into it. See what God does. Maybe the easiest way for you to do that right now is 25 bucks a month. See what God does. Be a part of something huge and let your boundaries start moving. And maybe it's more desperate for you. Maybe you're like the widow and you're saying as loudly as you can to God, I don't have anything left. I don't know what to do. Well, this is what God's saying to you. How can I help you? What do you have in your house? What do you have in your hands? Let's get busy fixing this. And he does. Move your boundaries so you can experience it. I want to close with a story from Billy Graham. It's a pretty good one. Billy tells of years and years and years ago, Franklin, I think, is somewhere around 60, 65 years old now. Franklin's Billy's son. When he was just a, a small boy, they were at church one Sunday, and a man came up to Franklin and gave him a dollar. Franklin's eyes just lit up. That was a lot of money in those days. He lit up. He had a dollar. He put it in his pocket and ran around church for a while. And when they got home, Franklin took that dollar out of his pocket and he gave it to Billy. And he said, Dad, would you keep this for me? And and Billy said, sure. So he folded it up, put it in his pocket. Franklin went outside to play and wasn't gone very long at all when he came back in and said, Dad, I, I think I need to keep my own dollar. So Billy reached into his pocket, gave it back to Franklin. Franklin put it back in his pocket, ran back outside to play. So he was out there playing and and then comes running back inside, this time with tears streaming down his face. And he said, Dad, I lost my dollar. Can you help me find it? And this is what Billy says out of that. We do the same thing with our faith all the time. We receive something from God. And then we give it to God as a trust. And we expect Him to hold it and protect it for us. But then we take it back. We hold on to it. And then we lose it. And then we come back to God and we cry out, Lord, I've lost it. Help me find it. That's what we do all the time. And faith, when it's working, doesn't take things back. Faith, when it's working, doesn't say, Lord, I'm going to hold on to it. Faith, when it's dying, holds on to things. When faith is dissipating and it's disappearing, it takes things back from God. And sometimes God says, I'll take you to the point of remembering how much you need me. Because like Tommy, sometimes we forget. But when we learn the lessons, it stretches our world immensely. 
I'll show you how that works. As the worship team's on their way up here, Mary England's going to come and share a, a quick story with you. She is a part of our finance team. I told you last week that they were all going to share a little bit with you over the course of the next few weeks. Mary has a pretty cool testimony to share with you. Some time ago, I told Phil that my faith had grown through the church's finances. I have been the, or had been the bookkeeper for the church for 13 or 14 years. And God has blessed me through that a great deal. When we started the first campaign for the church, there were about 185 people who took part of that campaign. We were able to make each of our church payments on the building faithfully for those three years. We even had some times when we could put some money on to the principal. That campaign was over, and then we had another campaign, and the same thing happened. We were able to make each of our payments, and sometimes we were able to make a payment on the principal. Some of those people have continued to give to the building fund, and we have always made our payment to the building debt. And that's because God had blessed us. Some years ago, we decided that we needed to help the community, and we wanted to give to the children in the community some Christmas for those that would not have had any Christmas at all. We took one week's income in December to do this. That left us with three-fourths of our income for the month of December, and we still had all of December's debts to pay and things that we had, obligations that we had to meet. And somehow God took that three-fourths that we had left and spread it out over the December time, and we didn't have any problems meeting our debts and taking care of our obligations. A few couple or three years ago, we decided we needed to take the gospel to the Happy's Inn area. The fire department down there decided that we could have a part of the old fire building and if we wanted to remodel it and make it into what could be used as a church. Phil thought we could do this for about $10,000. We took an offering and that offering was $26,000. And then God stepped in and stretched everything because that remodeling cost us somewhere around $40,000. We want to start this Impossible Possibilities campaign. And as Phil said, we can get our building paid off somewhere around four and a half years and save $400,000 in interest. God will bless us through this. I know he will. I'd like to quote Malachi 3.10, and I'm paraphrasing this. God said, bring your tithe to the church. Test me in this, said God Almighty, and see if I don't open the floodgates of heaven and pour out blessings beyond measure. God can do this, and therefore, we can do this.